the house. Let me hear your bark. Let me see you bite. Let me see your scar. You know what we about. Come see us in the yard. Hello and welcome to All We Hear is Purple, where the third or fourth most mediocre Husky football podcast on the entire internet. I am Andrew Berg, and I am joined tonight by Coach B. Coach, how's it going? How's it going, Andrew? Doing very well. Uh, we're going to talk about spring practice, the spring game, the spring recruiting, the spring NFL draft, and all other spring things today. Uh, Gaby's not with us today. She told us she's uh, on location throwing rocks at Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, we have a message from her coming up later uh, that we'll read, give more details on her whereabouts, but I rest assured that she is relatively safe. So let's jump right in. Uh, Coach, I know that you attended some of the spring practices uh, we're monitoring the spring game or the the spring preview or whatever we're calling it now. Uh, what was the vibe from the practices you went to? Uh, were you able to see anything about the new coaching staff? What, did the experience seem any different from what you've seen in the past? So actually, it was, it was an op- awesome opportunity for me. Uh, I wasn't able to make it to the spring preview itself uh, on the last day of spring practice, but I was able to see the open practice the weekend prior um, this year, I was uh, fortunate enough, I was able to participate in the coaches clinic. And part of the coaches clinic was we spent time on the field with the uh, kind of mixing and mingling on the field with the players and the coaches and, and really take in a different perspective from the open practice. Um, I thought that it was very well-structured, fast-paced, high-tempo, high-energy, the whole practice. It was great to see it. There was very minimal downtime, really drilling the specifics of uh, each individual drill and getting kind of the fundamentals and the technique down. Uh, at least the practice that I was at um, was, was a lot of that. Kind of some of the comments that I heard from the, from the coaching staff was that they do a lot of their feedback and their more nuanced kind of instruction and coaching is done off the field so that while they're, you know, in their two hour window of practices or whatever they're limited to, they really get a lot of the reps in. So really build on the fundamentals. And I thought it was just a very well-run practice. And sometimes that's the big difference between high-end coaches and some uh, coaches with uh, different kind of styles and whatnot, but uh, I, I thought it was, it was awesome. Yeah. It makes sense that if you have limited amount of time with your players, that what you get done in that time would have more value. If you're running your practices efficiently, you're going to be able to teach more than if you're wasting time in relatively limited uh, exposure that you have with players. Um, you know, and I, I think time has told us that, coaching does matter that you can't, that these aren't like experienced NFL professionals where the technique is flawless across the board and it actually does matter. And when we're talking about technique, I want to talk a little bit about the quarterback competition. I know you mentioned to me before that Ryan Grubb had some interesting comments on the three candidates and it did have to do with teaching technique and what their relative strengths and weaknesses are. Can you talk about what you heard from coach Grubb and where the quarterbacks are in their progression right now? Yeah, I, I think it's it was um, really eye-opening kind of hearing some of the comments during the coaches clinic um, from Coach Grubb himself. Uh, 
because the outsider perspective, you know, we kind of just see the broad resumes, some of the highlights from high school or um, previous uh, experience and things like that from the three candidates, but kind of hearing and seeing uh, clips of each individual quarterback that we have in the competition um, and really how detail oriented the coaching staff is. Grub really focused on things like footwork, balance um, during the drop back, platform throws. And what he emphasized a lot was that, you know, um, high school quarterbacks these days, you can see the talent, you know, but a lot of them are going to these personal trainers or quarterback coaches, private quarterback coaches, and they're trying to show off and the things that set them apart as far as maybe off-platform throws or kind of the lower percentage throws, the deep balls and things like that. But what Grubb talked about that um, kind of the broader Husky media narrative doesn't always pick up on are the small detail fundamentals because so one, one comment he made was, you know, 80% of the time you're just dropping back on schedule, making the reads and throwing, right? That's, that's most of what you do. Sure, there's going to be the plays that go awry, you know, off schedule plays, things like that, where, of course, it's always nice to have a quarterback that can make those plays um, outside of the structure of the offense. But first and foremost, you want to focus on the guys, um, focus the guys attention on doing their job, you know, and executing what the staff is, has uh, laid in front of them, right? Um, you know, it's uh, focusing on kind of like that 80-20 rule, right, of that kind of applies to a lot of things outside of football as well, where you want to get the fundamentals down, you know? So for example, uh, one example that he gave was that Dylan Morris and Michael Penix were a little bit more advanced as one would kind of expect in making uh, certain dropbacks and cutting off their dropback steps a little early. And as soon as they see um, the first read open up, maybe you're not all the way through a three-step drop, right? breaking it off, resetting platform, and then throwing. Whereas Sam Heward in his um, high school offense wasn't asked to do that as much because they were more vertically oriented offense where he had time to drop all the way back, reset at the end of the drop, maybe a couple hitch steps here and there, and then launch the deep ball, right? He didn't always have that, uh, that quick reset required, right? And that's some, some of the small fundamentals and the footwork and and being ready to throw and some of the platform things that, um, you know, if you don't have that deeper football insight or background, you know, kind of goes missed in the broader narrative. Yeah, it's interesting because it's almost like in Heward's case, the quality of program he went to almost inhibited his development possibly that because he had really good receivers and a really good line that he was able to stay on schedule most of the time. So we didn't have to to be ready to adjust to the same degree that somebody who has faced more adversity did. Obviously, in the limited exposure he's had in his collegiate career, he has faced plenty of adversity. But yeah, that, that's something he'll have to continue to learn and develop because he probably didn't come in as a true freshman with a ton of reps having to improvise or adjust in the middle of his drop back, like you were saying, and, and having coaches that are attuned to that. Uh, as opposed to, you know, an offensive coordinator who who is a, a running back or an offensive line specialist or something uh, is probably really valuable. 
100%. And then just one caveat before people kind of take that out of context and run with it. Grubb's offense did not design for him to, for, for the quarterback to be frantic. And it's not putting them in a bad position if they're under pressure. It's more focusing on the nuances of the quick passing that a lot of these high efficiency throws, these underneath throws, a lot of mesh, for example, right? It's sometimes the scheme is going to be designed so well and guys are going to be open so early that they, that the quarterback doesn't have time to get all the way to the third step, right? Break it off at, you know, the second step or something like that. Right. So just, I, cause I know that, you know, Husky fans and football fans in general can kind of take things out of context there and be, Oh, you know, a little gun shy about the new offense, but no, it's going to be good stuff. I, I'm totally sold on Grub. Yeah. I think what you're saying it's it's we've all we all watched the last couple seasons of the Husky offense and saw what the limitations were and most of us also watch other college football teams like Oklahoma's offense and and sell us somewhat with Ohio State the the quarterbacks are making really quick decisions they're looking at they're reading more at the line of scrimmage than probably most college quarterbacks did 20 years ago and that gives a huge advantage if you have a quarterback who can think the game quickly and make the right decision quickly before the defense has an opportunity to to cover up a mistake or adjust to what the offense is plan- trying to do. And if you even if you can make the decision, but you can't physically execute on it quickly, then it doesn't do you any good. So you have to have both the the mental and the physical part of it in synchronicity. And and they, you know they have to be able to teach both of those things. So I exactly I, I hear what you're saying. Part. I don't exactly. think it is that controversial. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we talked, that's, that's, I think of an interesting insight on the offense. I'd like to talk a little bit too about, uh, the deep dive that you wrote about Chuck Morrill's four, two, five defensive shell, uh, at least that what he's used before and what it looks like the Huskies are trending to using in the fall. What are some of the keys to the system and, and what did you see from your exposure at practice that supports that look or, or looks different from what you've seen from the video that you've watched? So I was uh, lucky enough, I was able to attend the breakout sessions of the coaches clinic with both, well, um, William Inge's um, breakout session, as well as both Julius Brown and Chuck Morrell. Um, and so kind of getting that holistic view of the back end, or at least a second level of the defense was really interesting and kind of kind of shed some light on the nuances of their scheme that I didn't immediately pick up on just watching Fresno, Fresno or Indiana tape, where uh, this is going to be, you know, not to kind of lean into the cliche, but this, this will actually be a, a fairly aggressive defense here. Uh, and, and the coverage will support that. Julius Brown kind of laid it all out. They're going to be aggressive with their DBs as well, right? It's not just going to be blitzing. It's going to be the DBs and all of that. It's going to be a press quarters coverage, right? Cover four, um, they're going to take away all the easy stuff, right? They want to get our DBs in the face of the receivers, give them you know, kind of take away all of the easy underneath throws and then kind of set up our linebackers to just tee off on, you know, the offense, right? Create havoc, right? Which was a, 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 quite a big departure from what we've seen the last couple of years where we had a very kind of bend but don't break kind of defense that lets the offense dink and dunk its way down the field, but kind of eliminate the big play. We're, we're kind of bringing everything and kind of throwing everything we can at the offense to get them off 
off schedule, uh, get them behind the chains and things like that. Visually for the Husky fans at home this fall, you'll see kind of a similar setup to what we've seen in the past four guys on the line of scrimmage, right? We have the edge position now, which is more or less going to look like our outside linebackers in, in our previous scheme, kind of stand up guys that might have their hand down, but you're going to have four guys and then two big bodies in the middle. You're going to have two linebackers behind them and then uh, five DBs for the most part. But the bigger difference is that we're going to have, instead of a lot of single high safety, 15 yards off the uh, line of scrimmage, right? The coaching staff wants to get the safeties involved as much as possible, right? Where in the past, when we did have two safeties deep, they were 10, 12 yards off the ball, really conservative, right? In, in the new quarters coverage kind of look that the staff is implementing now, you're going to move those guys up a few yards, you know, maybe sitting closer to 10 yards, maybe nine yards, something like that. And then giving them specific responsibilities in run fits. Um, so when the, they see certain keys on the offensive line or in the backfield, they're going to be charging, coming downhill and really getting them involved in the run defense. And then also at the same time, blitzing, right? We're going to see a lot of looks like that look kind of like man coverage because that's sort of what the, the match quarters look where it's kind of a hybrid between zone and man coverage, depending on how the offense breaks off its routes. But it, it's going to look really aggressive, and, and I'm all for that. Yeah, it's interesting. You started off saying that the aggressiveness and saying we're going to play aggressively can be a cliche. And I think, I suppose that's true, but given the approach that we've had basically for the last seven years, that wasn't really a defense that you would start off as describing as aggressive. And and you alluded to that, that there was the, the two deep safety shell and not a lot of exotic blitzing. And there was, it was kind of designed to take away big plays. And while that might not sound as thrilling, it was really, really effective for most of the Peterson in the lake tenure and slipped a little bit at the end because it bent so much that it kind of verged on breaking. And we had these like 15 play drives that were so maddening because we didn't have either the elite linebackers or the elite uh, interior defensive linemen that could support that scheme. But when you, you know, it can work. You can have even not leaning into the cliche and having a, a less aggressive, uh, strategic defense you can still be really effective if you force the other team to make mistakes or limit big plays enough that they can't sustain drives on the other hand yeah. we, we we kind of that that we also saw the limitations of that these these super long back-breaking drives uh that exhausted our our defense and put the offense at a disadvantage and leaning into the other side of that having you know bigger uh like that that 11th defender moving from being a slot corner to this Husky position and being somebody bigger and more physical seems to support that, that you'd want them initiating contact and playing closer to the line. Uh, it seems like we're kind of using similar types of linemen, but with really bulky interior defensive linemen and guys on the outside who can get into space and move that all kind of fits together that we're going to force the other team's hand more often 
maybe that'll lead to more big plays on occasion, but if it can also cause more turnovers, more sacks, more negative plays, hopefully, you know, the trade-off will be worth it. And we can get back to the level we were five years ago defensively. Exactly. And, and um, it was also interesting. Well, so early in the Peterson era, of course, we had two now Super Bowl winning nose tackles in the middle, right? Greg Gaines, Vita Vea. We had some other NFL caliber defensive linemen. It was really uh, a crazy lineage of the inter- even going back really to the was. late Sark years, Qualls, and uh, it's it just incredible lineup. Danny Shelton, uh, like so many starting caliber NFL defensive tackles in a row. Uh, we got spoiled, I think is the, the short version of it. Yes, but I think that we, our new defensive scheme will be able to achieve similar results to those early defenses with that ridiculous talent on the defensive front, but without necessarily requiring that talent because of how we use our linebackers and how uh, William Inge likes to mix things up with the front six or seven, where we don't need dominant defensive tackles to absorb you know, blocks and, and take on two guys at a time and things like that. It's going to be getting more aggressive with how we blitz our linebackers, right? William Inch made this great comment that I, I kind of knew in the back of my head, but it didn't really click until he said it where, you know, it's, it's pretty hard for a linebacker or any defensive player to screw up an assignment when their assignment is splits, right? That's one of the yeah. easiest things for them to, to pick up on, right? And so, you know, they're going to look for guys that can blitz, that can mix it up at the line of scrimmage, kind of sift through all, the, all of that mess. But the system is in part designed to blitz a lot like that because it helps get younger players involved sooner, right? It's easier to pick up, easier for them to play fast and really – kind of gives them a, a chance to get early experience and kind of as they develop throughout their career, add on to the other coverage aspects, um, run fit aspects of their of their job. And that, that's been something that's really been hampering, at least in the old scheme, um, our linebacker play, right? Where, um, but even then you kind of see some interesting kind of patterns there where, you know, our best linebackers, you know, uh, two years ago, right, our best linebacker was Eddie Ulfoscio, where he was one of the most productive blitzing inside linebackers. And he kind of came out of nowhere and made a name for himself because he was well utilized in that one year where Coach K took back over the defensive play calling. Uh, during the COVID season. And so I think that that approach, you know, Husky fans can appreciate that approach having already seen that uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah. I, I think bigger picture, there's been a disconnect between the caliber of players UW has recruited at linebacker and the production we've seen on the field or lack of production. And the way that you've described it here and in the past helps better understand why some of the athletic physical linebackers we were recruiting weren't getting into their athleticism and using their physicality on the field. So hopefully this can be a, a position that looks like it's a little bit shallow and has underperformed. It seems like it could turn around pretty quickly because it seems like a better use of the talent that we've already brought onto the roster. Of course, help permitting. And that's a, that's an important caveat. To that's, the position. that's a huge caveat, but I, I am much more confident in, 
the linebacker play stepping up in year one than I was previously. So other than the things that you've talked about already, uh, I know we've covered a lot of ground, but can you tell me something that based on what you've seen from these coaching clinics and their exposure through the spring practices and even going back and watching some of the spring preview footage, anything that you're more excited about under the DeBoer regime than you were when uh, he was hired and the, the assistant coaching staff was put together? Is there something that you've seen over these practices that has made you more optimistic about that position group or that, that offensive philosophy or something along those lines? You know, it's, there's a number of things that I'm excited about. Um, kind of, as we already talked about, I'm, I'm very keen on seeing how our, our pretty solid defensive talent might flourish in this new, more aggressive, proactive scheme. Um, and then just the overall structure and the attention to detail now being given to the passing game kind of as low hanging fruit relative to the John Donovan days. But kind of the thing that stood out to me the most kind of in my interactions around the coaching staff, and it might sound cliched, but it is the culture. And I think folks have picked up towards the end of the Jimmy Lake days that something was just a little bit off with the team. Tough to put your finger on it, but there seems to be that energy and the renewed uh, passion on the team and the staff is, the staff first and foremost is kind of laying that foundation for further success down the line by paying attention to the culture. Ron McKeefrey was a keynote speaker in the coaches clinic and he's, I, I can see why, uh, you know, it's, it's been rumored that Alabama wanted to go poach him this past off season. So we had to give him a, a little bit of a pay raise uh, even before he really started his work here. Um, but it's, it's that renewed attention to detail, that hunger, that drive that I'm seeing from all of, you know, not just the starters, but the, the twos, the threes, the walk-ons, um, they're, they're really going after it. And, and you can kind of see that there's, you know, really quick buy-in already. Um, I, we were talking about it in the, uh, the, the UW writers uh, Slack and how there was rumors that there might've been up to 10 transfers post-spring, but thus far, We've only had a handful, um, mostly walk-ons uh, that have moved on. I mean, granted, there was the loss of uh, Bynum prior to spring, and then uh, Jacoby Covington just after spring was uh, quite a hit to the depth. But um, other than that, kind of crickets. And, you know, you, you'd expect in today's age of the transfer portal and NIL and things of that, that when you have a, a wholesale turnover of the coaching staff, that there might be more guys, especially one that's following uh, a coaching staff that might have lost sight of the team culture, that there might have been more turnover. But it, it, it looks like uh, DeBoer and the staff are, are doing their jobs quite yeah, well. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about recruiting uh, a little bit later, but I, I wanted to echo what you were saying about how encouraging it is that the players who have spent time around DeBoer and the rest of his staff are staying in droves as Yogi Berra would say, you know, if people don't want to show up, nobody's going to stop them. Uh, that every school is having massive attrition. We lost after, you know, of, of players who spent a meaningful amount of time with this coaching staff, a scholarship player, uh, you know, Jacoby Covington is the one 
and that's you know there'll probably be more i guess caleb barry left too because there are 13 scholarship right. running backs yep. on the roster um <laughs> but it, it, like we that, that was almost it, the, the, i don't want to minimize that that's he he was a promising recruit and it, it's too bad that it didn't work out but the number of guys who have stayed after a coaching change and after a really bad year and after a pretty significant philosophical shift on both sides of the ball is shocking to me. Like, I, I think it's, it, it's not the end of the, the analysis. It's a data point, but we went through the coaching change and we went through spring practice and the number of impact players who transferred out is, is lower than most schools that had much better fundamentals, you know, consistency exactly. in the coaching staff, uh, consistency in their assistant coaches, you know, probably a better year last year, which speaks to an ability to build relationships. And even if that doesn't manifest itself on the recruiting trail in the first three months, it makes me more optimistic about where we'll end up down the road. Exactly. Uh, but, but let's take a break with that. Cause we do want to talk a little bit more about the specifics of recruiting so far. And also a little bit about uh, the NFL draft. We were talking to Heather Tarr about UW softball the week of the draft. And it was an awesome podcast. And if you didn't listen to it, you should, because there are super interesting nuggets about coaching philosophy and Chris Peterson and player development and, uh, you know, working in the, the current NCAA uh, environment that would apply even if you're not into softball. But if you are, it's a must listen. Anyway, uh, we did not talk about the NFL draft. So we're going to do a little bit of that and stick around. We will be right back. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. As promised, we're going to talk a little bit about recruiting and the results of the NFL draft. First of all, let's talk about the quarterback position. We didn't get a quarterback recruit in the 22 class. The seemingly the last uh, big swing at a potential a star in the 2023 class, Kabari Johnson committed to Missouri this week after he seemed to shop himself around to almost any other program besides his in-state program. You have any concerns about the quarterback position moving forward, either the depth of position or developing a future starter? Yeah, I, I'm, it's pretty well understood that every, every avid Husky fan is a little concerned about the depth aspect of the quarterback position, kind of like uh, recruiting linemen. You don't really want to miss out in back-to-back classes. Um, even, even if you, take a depth guy or a developmental guy. Um, you, you always probably want to target getting a guy every year uh, just to make sure that, you know, inevitably you're going to have some roster turnover, some attrition, injury. You have to be prepared for all of that. And so only carrying three scholarship quarterbacks on the spring roster was a little bit uh, concerning for me. It's uh a positive sign that we didn't see a departure post spring from Dylan Morris, who potentially would have been the likeliest transfer candidate, depending on how the quarterback situation was looking post spring. So I hope that they probably bring in probably a transfer quarterback, um, maybe a younger transfer quarterback with some upside, but maybe not star potential uh, is, is something that we might look into just because of a, uh, Michael Penix's limited remaining eligibility, but we probably don't need to look for an immediate starter or kind of like an entrenched journeyman type just yet. Uh, it's promising kind of some of the reports out of the spring preview that Sam Heward's really kind of taking the next step in his development. So that that's our 
kind of golden ticket to future starting potential right there, long-term or at least longer term. But you, you probably want to see uh, a fourth scholarship quarterback added sometime between now and, and the fall practices. As far as the 23 class, yeah, we, we probably want to take another quarterback there as well. It's a real bummer that we didn't get Johnson on board and that he, it doesn't seem like he's a likely candidate to flip from his uh, Missouri commitment. Didn't really seem to show much interest with UW pretty much from the get-go. Um, I don't blame him. We didn't uh, offer him until rather late in uh, the late tenure, if I remember correctly. And so, you know, no love lost for the local kid. If down the line he decides he does want to come home, I'm sure Husky fans would love to see him come back. But, you know, time, time for our program to move forward, look at the next option. And I think we have a solid blend right now of experience and talent in the room between Penix, Morris, and Heward. So bringing in another capable arm that can be developed, you know, maybe a really raw uh, quarterback with uh, good talent, good arm talent, some mobility might might be nice for, for Grubb to work with. Um, I have more confidence now than I did previously in our ability to develop quarterbacks. So may, maybe taking on a project uh, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world right now. Yeah, I, I'm a little surprised they haven't done that yet. But as you said, there's still opportunity between now and the start of the season to find a transfer who didn't work out elsewhere who could come in and potentially be that case of emergency break class option. Um, and, and it does worry me a little bit that there are only three guys on the roster, especially because it seems like we won't keep all three of these guys for their remaining eligibility. So at some point we are going to have to get more depth at quarterback, but if it's a, if the coaching staff is comfortable with this group and they don't feel like they need more depth, at least there are three guys who I'm not terrified of putting on the field right now, if we can keep them all into the fall. So that, that is a silver lining uh, outside of the, the quarterback room. There are only three commitments to the class of 2023 so far, all three stars, all interestingly from Southern California, or maybe not interestingly, given that a lot of the staff just came from central California. Uh, lots of the offers went out in the last week, especially on defense. What do you expect to see in recruiting over the summer? Is it just going to kind of be a, a slow trickle for this class, or do you think there's a chance to pick up some momentum? I think there was, uh, if, if I was remembering all the reports and rumors kind of trickling in from all the different parts of the Husky universe, that there was supposedly some momentum building towards the end of spring practice for um, getting a big group of official visits coming up in the next month or so. So I expect probably a handful of uh, verbal commitments to come in right after that happens. So probably sometime by mid-June, we should get a better idea of where this class is heading. Um, I kind of had already taken the approach of, you know, this is the transition year, um, whether, DeBoer and the staff answers the questions of, you know, the recruiting questions that uh, were out there, given that they're stepping up to a power five program. Um, you know, regardless of which way it goes, I don't think we'll see much change in the trajectory for year one. You know, if, if we see a positive improvement, excellent. You know, maybe we land, you know, 
both of the major offensive line prospects uh, locally, you know, uh, Landon Hatchett, younger brother of Garen Hatchett, uh, is a really uh, well-regarded interior offensive line prospect, as well as Michael Benuelos, who I think has tremendous upside as a guard or a center. And, you know, in case of emergency, he does have the athleticism to maybe bump out to tackle and play a little bit of, uh, uh, of tackle in case of emergency is um, similar to Victor Kern, where, you know, atypical physical traits, you know, as far as measurements go, but great athleticism, good feet, solid size, you know, could possibly work out there if, if you needed him to. Landing those two local guys would go a long way in kind of answering some of those questions of can he recruit, uh, recruit locally? Can he keep the, the talent in state? But other than those two, you know, it, it seems like we're, we're doing well with uh, Josiah Wagner. He's a well-regarded four-star prospect, I believe, cornerback. You know, hopefully we can, we can keep him home. Um, it's going to be tough going just because I know a lot of national programs have, it, have their eye on him, similar to Caleb Presley, who doesn't seem quite as interested, but I, I suppose there's always a shot at landing him as well. But line recruiting, first and foremost, that's kind of my philosophy. You, you got to build your teams from the line. Um, and so I top of my wish list are Hatchet and Benuelos. Yeah, I think that would be two great centerpieces for the class and having great linemen is going to make any quarterback's job easier. So if we're looking to build toward getting the right quarterbacks down the road, rebuilding the line and showing that it performs really well would be very helpful in that regard. Uh, let's talk a little bit about where we landed after the NFL draft. It, we're kind of talking about building things from scratch and, and starting over, but there's a lot of talent on this team, even if it underperformed. Uh, there was, you know, a first, second, fourth, and fifth round pick. Trent McDuffie went to the Chiefs at 21, Kyler Gordon to the Bears at 39. So obviously a ton of, as we knew, talent in the secondary. Kate Otten to the Bucks at 106 to be little Gronk, I guess, which is really cool for him that he's going to, uh, you I, know, I love that pick right there. Potentially catch passes from Tom Brady uh, and then Luke Wattenberg to Denver. Anything you mentioned, you loved the Otten pick and the Otten fit. Any, anything, any other takeaways from that list? Uh, I also love McDuffie going to the chiefs at 21. I think Steve Spagnolo asked a lot of his uh, uh, defensive backs in his scheme. So uh, McDuffie being one of the more versatile and polished cornerback uh, prospects in the draft. I, I think he's set up for success there. Um, they should have a solid offense as everybody knows, you know, they got Patty Mahomes and the plethora of receiving weapons over there where, you know, they'll more likely than not, they'll be playing with a lead in a lot of games. And so that, that'll let McDuffie and the defense kind of get a little bit more aggressive playing with a lead and um, kind of let his talent show a little bit more. Yeah, that's that is a, a, a makes sense to me, and and they've had success with players like him in the past, so it should be a good place for him to develop. I, I, you know, just from what we've seen of him on Montlake, it'd be kind of shocking if he wasn't really good in the pros as well. Uh, were there anybody, other, any other drafted players that you were especially high on? I, I know a couple for me. I, I've mentioned before, I grew up in. Uh, North Dakota. So I follow NDSU and there's a lot of attention to Christian Watson, the wide receiver. 
he had a little bit of trouble staying healthy at times and, and played the last two years without really much of a passing quarterback. They had a Virginia tech transferred in Quincy Patterson, who is a, a very good running quarterback, but it just cannot complete. He's very, very inaccurate passer. Uh, and then I, I think he's going to be very successful uh, in the NFL. I, I think he is super athletic. If he stays healthy and he has a real quarterback and he has, you know, one of the best in the world, if not the best, uh, in Green Bay, throwing to him, he could be really explosive and, and always be a have a matchup advantage with his size and speed and quickness. Uh, I also thought, uh, from Pac-12 perspective, I've always thought Greg Dulcich looked like a pro tight end, especially in the current mold of guys who kind of split out wide, uh, like the Kyle Pitts type. He's going to be he's going to be a very good red zone threat, in my opinion. Is any thoughts on those guys or anybody else that uh, picks that caught your eye in the NFL draft? I, I also really like Dulcich um, as a college player. Uh, we saw him last year when UCLA came up and played UW. He, he, he was uh, one of the main guys we had to focus on on defense uh, just because of his pretty dynamic receiving ability there. Um, I don't know if he'll necessarily be like a Travis Kelsey or a Gronk or something of that level of uh tight end play but he certainly seems like the kind of guy where you know he'll stick around for a while in the league and but but outside of just individual players i for once really like the seahawks draft um they kind of like what i said about recruiting linemen they went after linemen this year they got i think two really solid prospects for bookend tackles in Charles Cross and Abraham Lucas, as far as as hard it is for me to say, Lucas was a solid player for Washington State. Um, no love lost there, you know. Uh, it's really the folks down south that riled me up. But um, uh, building from the line of scrimmage out, and then they also got some really talented um, corners. I can't quite remember. I think it's Tariq Woolen was one of their later round draft picks, um, big, long, fast, uh, defensive back. I think he was like six foot four yeah, or ran yeah. like a sub four, five, four, four, something like that. He, he, he was really fast, really athletic, uh, a little bit raw, but you know, Pete Carroll specialty is uh, defensive back play. So hopefully they can coach him up. But I, I think overall they got a really solid draft class. They went back to their roots of playing defense and then, good line play. I mean, when they won the Super Bowl, they had the, I believe they had the highest paid offensive line um, in the league that year, as well as a a really young athletic team. Um, Interesting that they took uh, Kenneth Walker, the running back out of Michigan State in the second round. You know, I think he's a really solid running back and we, we have some solid running backs in the, on the roster for the Seahawks tend to have some injury history kind of issues there. So taking another one, not the worst thing in the world, maybe not the best value, but I, I like the, the talent addition right there anyways. Yeah. The Walker one seemed weird to me too. Like the, the kind of less two, three dimensional running backs uh, in the second round seems to be out of style, but Seahawks aren't afraid of doing things out of style. Uh, yeah. And the uh, wool and the, the defensive back from UTSA, 
I, I saw, I didn't know much about him, uh, but when I saw that combination of his height and his 40 time, I, my first thought was like, he must have been terrible in college because if you're that tall and that fast uh, you, and you don't get drafted until the fifth round, there must be some rough edges that you have to smooth out. But uh, like you said, Seahawks have done that really, really well in the past. So maybe that will work out. Let's um, put a, a plug in the draft talk and get into our recommendations and plugs. As I mentioned earlier, Gaby sent in a message. I'm just going to read this verbatim. So imagine this uh, in her voice instead of mine. Hello, good denizens of earth and or other better places. I wanted to be here recording with the gang, but alas, my cat fell asleep on my lap and hasn't gotten off yet. So I'm unable to attend without breaking the law. It's capital. Either that or whichever alibi Andrew and Colin have cooked up for me that's better. Less believable, probably seeing as I do spend on average eight or nine of my waking hours unable to move due to a cat sitting on me, but more sympathy grabbing, like scaling K2 or giving away every last cent of my money to a capital V very worthy charity. With that extra $30, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Whales will finally be able to reverse the endangered status of the orca. So am I a hero? Who's to say, really? But yes, and you can be too, by donating any number to any number of organizations like the Orca Conservancy, because Southern resident orcas are hashtag icons and way cooler than people. Fun fact, one way to tell if you're married to a deranged maniac is if you play the Orca Call audio footage from the 2002 reunion of a lost orca calf with her Northern resident pod and mom and your spouse doesn't cry, they're a serial killer and you should leave them for your own safety like ASAP. And that's it. So that's what Gaby had to add tonight. Um, so I guess, yeah, that, that's uh, if you want to donate to the Southern Resident Orca Conservancy. I think my family, because my wife is also obsessed with orcas, has probably donated to that. She has adopted an orca um, and, and pays for it and has a certificate that says she has her own orca, which is just a, a, a fundraising technique. But anyway, if you have anything to add that isn't about uh, whales, feel free to jump in. I'm not entirely sure how I'm supposed to follow up, baby, <laughs> but... Uh yeah i'm not even gonna act like my recommendation this week is uh anything close to that but broad recommendation watch some old movies that you haven't seen in a while i happened to have gone home last week back to hawaii and so i had a lot of time on the flights and decided oh let's go watch saving private ryan again or something like that you know or maybe you can watch something a little bit lighter than that but you know what, what whatever whatever you choose you know watch something that you know you might not have thought about rewatching. you know something that might not be considered an eminently rewatchable movie or tv show or something like that but you know classics are the classics for a reason so that's my plug for the reason hey i'm, I'm with that it makes sense uh, I was on vacation last week, so I had a bunch of time to read, and I got this book that my dad just gave me last time I saw him that he'd finished called The Red Breast by a Norwegian author named Joe Nesbo, uh, and it was uh, gripping. It wasn't like the the perfectly written book. Uh, it was about uh, set in the late 90s, early 2000s as a detective in Oslo, Norway, uh, investigating like some neo-Nazi uh, terror activity and it kind of is told on two timelines along with um, Norwegians fighting on the eastern front of World War II conscripted by the German army fighting against the Soviets on the eastern front uh, and then kind of the echoes of that in more modern times and it was it was a page turner man <laughs> like I, it's like 600 pages long I read it in like three days because it was just like couldn't wait to see what happened next very intense uh, so if you're kind of into that sort of 
like page turner detective spy mystery uh type novels uh very very good and i i finished the book and it, it was i guess this author's second or third book and so on the inside cover it had advertisements for two other books and i finished it and found out that he's written like 19 more of them so um <laughs> there, there's no shortage of books in this series if you do get into it. So I'll probably check out more of those as well. You have your summer reading cut out for you there. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I try to go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction, but I, I don't know how I'm going to get through this whole series if I do that. It'll be like three summers worth of reading. Any final thoughts, Coach? No, it's awesome. Glad to be back on the pod, you know? Yeah, thanks Anytime. for I love the, the discussion on the spring practice uh, insight. We wouldn't get anywhere else. Uh, so I appreciate that. We'll be back again next time. Gabe will be joining us again. Cody Pickett will probably be with us. I mean, odds are getting ever more in our favor. So thanks for listening and go dogs. Go dogs. <laughs>